Hey everyone, one pre-show note. If you're a recent or current medical or surgical retina fellow or a pediatric ophthalmology fellow, we are interested in learning about your attitudes towards retinopathy of prematurity. It'd be a huge help if you could check out the link in the episode description for a brief survey. Now, back to the episode. Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology and OCAPS review podcast. I'm your host, Ben Young, and this week we have a special episode with one of our TGY3 residents, Nikhil Bomakanti, who gave an excellent talk on the condition that we will now go into at one of our fluorescein conferences. Nikhil, thanks for coming on. Ben, it's great to be here. So do you want to go ahead and take it away and tell us about the patient that you saw, and we'll go through the whole case. Let's do it. Ben, this is a 65-year-old woman who was referred for evaluation of a central scotoma in the right eye, which developed acutely three weeks ago. She had no past ocular history. Her past medical history was notable for the usual suspects, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, for which she took amlodipine, atorvastatin, and aspirin. Uh, Oh, and to clarify, like with every case presentation we do, minor details have been changed to help protect patient privacy, etc. So what did the exam look like? Visual acuity was 2400 in the right eye and 2020 in the left eye. There was no afferent pupillary defect and the intraocular pressure was normal. The remainder of the anterior segment exam was normal. So as always is a challenge with our audio format, I'm going to ask Nikhil to now paint a picture with his words of what he saw in the fundus. You got it. In the right eye, the media was clear. The disc looked normal. The vessels were notable for arteriovenous nicking, and in the macula, there was a large amount of central fluid. It did involve the fovea, and in the supranasal macula, there was this round, whitish region with some associated heme. The periphery looked normal, and the entire exam for the left eye was also normal. Okay, got it. So basically, we're, we're seeing a patient who has a central scotoma, a lot of subretinal fluid with some kind of thing in the center of it. Like what color would you say that thing is? You know, I'd say it was uh, whitish, yellowish, maybe a little bit more yellowish. And there's a little bit of blood around this whitish, yellowish thing too. That's right. Okay. Got it. Got it. So Ben, what are you thinking about this now as a second year retina fellow? Yeah, I'm going to pause so that the listener can think of something. Totally not so that I can try to think of something. Of course, it's pure didactic. Of course, yeah, this is, yeah. Uh, so some things that come to mind when you have, you know, a large amount of central subretinal fluid is something like central serous chorioretinopathy. You know, it's a little weird to, this white thing in the center of it is a little bit different. I mean, you can have RPE changes in, in CSR, but the, having this, this kind of white Goomba in there is not, uh, is not typical. You can also think of polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy. Perhaps we're seeing a polyp is what what is being described. You can also think of things like Coates disease, which can leave exudates that maybe is gives the appearance of what um, of what we're seeing in, on this exam. Von Hippel-Lindau can also give things that look very much like this, like small hemangiomas or hemangioblastomas. Uh, diabetic retinopathy can always do something like this, though. For it to be, it sounds like it's a pretty confluent area of fluid that you that you're seeing. Yeah, so you know, diabetic retinopathy can give you confluent areas of intraretinal fluid, uh, so it's possible. But again, it doesn't really explain that goomba in the center. And radiation retinopathy can really closely mimic diabetic retinopathy. 
And then the last thing is something like a retinal arterial macroaneurysm. So what did you do next, Nikhil? Yeah, so the next step uh, was to get an OCT. And the OCT showed dilation of an interretinal vessel and significant subretinal fluid. So let's pause and give the listener time to think about what they would want to do next. And what did you actually do next, Nikhil? So, Ben, due to the exudate and the vascular involvement, the subrenal fluid, it made sense to next do a fluorescein angiogram. And the fluorescein angiogram showed blocking at this roundish outpouching in the macula with actually some trace pooling surrounding that. Okay. And you, by the outpouching, you mean that kind of white, yellow-white Goomba that we saw that... that and I guess maybe we should go back and clarify that yellowish whitish goomba that you saw on the ear exam correlated with what on the OCT? It correlated with dilation of an inner retinal vessel. Okay, so we've got some kind of dilated inner retinal vessel that is actually blocking, not necessarily leaking, which is interesting, and has trace pooling of fluid around it. Okay, so I think that sounds like it's helpful in trying to figure out what our differential is, but... You know, the blocking is interesting. It's actually probably not what I would have expected from this lesion. What what can what what other tests could one do to try to figure out what's going on? So, you know, there are a couple of different types of angiography. Um, and there's one that I know that you in particular are a big fan of. It's, it's so nice. What what is it? What's my favorite? <laughs> Your absolute favorite, which the listener can refer back to for a previous episode on, is ICG angiography, endocyanine green angiography. Yeah. So why would it be useful here, though? So I think in this case, uh, ICG angiography could be useful because for two reasons, at least. One is that, as you mentioned, polypoidal coronal vasculopathy is on the differential. And the second is that what we've seen so far is incompletely evaluated on FA. And so what, what can ICG do that the fluorescein can't do in this case? Oh, you're, you're really quizzing me on how well I listened to that last episode. Huh? <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, so uh, basically, um, the difference between the two is that um, the, the molecule is 98% protein bound as opposed to uh, fluorescein, which is 80% protein bound. So therefore, it remains within the choriocapillaris. That's one. The second is that based on the wavelength of light, the light actually penetrates the heme and other debris, as opposed to with FA, where that short wavelength excitation light is just scattered by the macular xanthophyll and the RPE. So we can actually see deeper through heme, and we can visualize an important structure, the choroid. Gotcha. So... In this case, even though you told us that the vessel in question is in the inner retina, there's something blocking. So even though we're not trying to image the choroid specifically here, there may be some value to the ICG because it can help us see under or through heme or other things that might be in the wave review. So in this case, what did the ICG show? So in this case, first it showed that there was no polypoidal coronal vasculopathy. It also showed this round focal area of hyperfluorescence, which was centered within the hemorrhage that was kind of in the region of that Goomba that you were talking about earlier. Hmm. So what diagnosis that did that end up leading us to? So I think putting everything together, Ben, what we have here is the last element on your differential, which was a retinal arterial macroaneurysm. Cool. 
Now, that's a weird thing that seems to have happened. Can you tell us a little bit more now about retinal arterial macroaneurysms or RAM, as the cool kids call it? Yeah, absolutely. So these are these are really interesting. Now, it turns out that isolated arterial aneurysms have been described as early as 1880, but RAMs, retinal arterial macroaneurysms, were defined as a distinct entity in 1973, so a long time later and much more recently. We uh, will link in the show notes to a paper that shows this artist rendition of some of these old aneurysms. It's brilliant. I mean, these are hand-drawn illustrations. It's kind of incredible what they were able to see back then. Yeah, yeah. We'll link that below. So, so what is it actually? Like, what you know? I mean, it kind of is, makes sense in the description, but what? How would you define it? Yeah, so the definition really is an acquired dilation of the vessel that's within three, the first three orders of arterial branching. And they often, but not always, occur at an AV crossing, at an arteriovenous crossing. Interesting. And just as a clarification to listeners, especially if you're uh, you know, more junior resident or a medical student, this is completely different from a microaneurysm which is a very small dilation of a vessel that you typically will see in things like diabetic retinopathy, radiation retinopathy. But those are, you know, they look like tiny little pinpoint hemorrhages almost on a vessel. Macroaneurysm is very different. It's a completely different pathophysiology and pathogenesis, and it's much, much bigger, as the name suggests. Can you tell us what that pathogenesis is, Nikhil? Like, why does this happen? Why do people think it happens? Why does it happen at AV crossing points? It's not completely understood, but the hypothesis is that there's damage to an arterial wall by cholesterol or emboli or occlusion, and then that leads to localized ischemia, collagen remodeling, and then vessel dilation. And this especially happens in the setting of high blood pressure in hypertension. Interesting. So, and that, I guess, gives us our, some of the risk factors for people to get it, like probably people who are vasculopaths, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, etc., So how can these present? Like, how do patients perceive these? Yeah, so there's actually a a wide range of presentations. They could be entirely asymptomatic and just picked up on a fundus examination, or they could cause acute vision loss. And that could be from either the hemorrhagic or the exudative complications of this. And approximately 50% are associated with hemorrhage from a couple of of small case series. They can also be associated with vascular occlusions. Hmm. So you mean like an arterial or or venous occlusion? Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's right. So why would that be? That's, you know, I would think if I didn't know anything about these things that, oh, you have a bigger vessel, then that means that it should actually have better flow. Like it should be a high flow state. So how does that make any sense? You'd get a, a vessel occlusion from it. Yeah, so that's, again, not completely understood, but one thought that we have is, you know, you can think about this, essentially it's an aneurysm, right? A large aneurysm, a macroaneurysm, so that's an outpouching of a vessel. So first you have to think about how fluids flow, and there's this fancy idea called the continuity equation, and it talks about how the mass flow rate is conserved for an incompressible fluid. But really what that's saying is there's the same amount of stuff that's flowing at all points in the pipe because you can't squish the fluid. So if you think about that, then what that means is as the cross-sectional area increases, so you get a, you're flowing through a bigger area, then the speed or the flow velocity reduces, right? So in a larger area, the fluid is flowing more slowly. 
And that's because, again, the same amount of stuff is moving per time. So it's moving more slowly in that area. So that plus turbulence could potentially lead to this hypercoagulable state. And that could lead to a vessel occlusion. Okay, so it's the relative low velocity state that leads to the more of an ability for it to form like a thrombus or, or something in that area. That's basically what we're saying, right? Potentially. Okay. And is that so that probably explains why we're seeing kind of this white goomba in the center of this vessel. I mean, we normally think of aneurysms or vessels to be red because they have blood flowing through them and they should be red. But this brings us back to the original question of what that what that white goomba was in the middle of all that subretinal fluid. So it sounds like that, that was actually a thrombus, yeah. basically in the vessel. Yeah, could be. And that I think is something that is I mean, we'll go more into it later, but for the listener, that's something that I think is kind of unique about macroaneurysms is that they can form these clots right in the center. So if you see someone who has a big, you know, subretinal or intraretinal hemorrhage and you don't know why, but they have this white centered thing in the middle of it, then I won't tell you that's pathognomonic for a macroaneurysm, but very often that's a macroaneurysm. That's where your thinking should end up leading you towards. So what kind of patients end up getting this? Yeah, so patients very much like the one that we presented, and it's not because we changed all the demographics to fit this. Maybe it is, but the <laughs> the, the patient's age is tends to be sixties uh, to seventies. This tends to occur more commonly in women as compared to men. It tends to be more unilateral, although it could be bilateral. And the most commonly associated medical comorbidity is hypertension. Okay, so what? What is the natural history of this condition? Like, what? Let's say that she had it happen. She never met us, and then you know wandered away. What? What would have happened to her eye? In general, Ben, it's actually pretty good. So the natural history is eventual thrombosis with spontaneous involution, but. Sometimes this can be complicated by hemorrhage, as I mentioned before, and this can occur in any layer. Um, there can also be exudate. So you can imagine that if this is accompanied, for example, by subretinal heme, then that could be problematic. Right. Yeah. Subretinal heme can be very toxic to the retina, which we'll talk about probably like in great detail in the future episode. And, you know, in this case, I think the patients, so in, in this patient's case, it wasn't really the hemorrhage that was causing the issue. It was the subretinal fluid that had developed. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this person has 2400 vision. They're basically, you know, almost blind in this eye because of this condition. So we probably can't just go with the natural history and try to hope that it goes away. What options do we have to try to manage it? So the very first thing that you want to do is medical risk factor management in conjunction with the patient's primary care physician. In general, the management and treatment is guided by the presence or absence of these hemorrhagic or exudative complications of the disease. So if the patient is doing well overall, we can do observation. If not, we can consider anti-VEGF, laser photocoagulation, or potentially, for example, if there's a submacular hemorrhage, then some surgical treatment. So... You know, if it's just the fluid and not the subretinal hemorrhage you're trying to deal with, basically you can do anti-VEGF or laser photocoagulation. And there, just like many diseases with an ophthalmology, there's no good randomized control trial to show us what is best in whatever situation. For anti-VEGF, you know, there, there was a reasonable-sized prospective case series where 38 patients who had worse than 
40 vision who are symptomatic and had a retinal arterial macroaneurysm uh, got intravitreal bevacizumab three times uh, Q monthly, kind of like we treat something like macular degeneration. And the patients did improve. You know, the patients on average had vision 2080 and they improved to 2025 after the end of this these rounds of injections. And almost all of them had, uh, basically all of them had resolution of the subretinal fluid at that point. Basically, this summary is that patients did well with three rounds of anti-VEGF, but there were some big limitations to this kind of a study. There's no control group, so maybe they would have done well anyways, which we know from natural history studies that many patients do well anyways. So, you know, this could this could all just be a natural history kind of a thing. I'll tell you in general, I think what most retina providers do is if there's a lot of subretinal fluid that they'll offer anti-VEGF, knowing that we don't have great evidence at in the end, it will actually provide a significant improvement to patients. You can also think about something like laser photocoagulation. Basically, the is you try to zap these aneurysms to, to help get them to close up. However, depending on what the aneurysm is, you could do damage to the underlying retina, especially if it's near the fovea or near the optic nerve. If you're targeting a large vessel that's in the inner retina with a laser, then you're also going to cook things that are in or around the inner retina, which includes a nerve fiber layer, and if it's near the optic nerve, then you can knock out a huge portion of someone's vision. So, you know, I don't, I personally don't know many retina specialists that favor something like laser photocoagulation, but if someone is not improving, it's something that you definitely could consider. So, uh, Nikhil, what ended up happening with this patient? So, Ben, in this patient who had significant subretinal fluid, which involved the fovea, had an aneurysm that was located within the papillomacular bundle and was located pretty close to the optic nerve head. The plan after joint discussion uh, was to trial anti-VEGF. Now, after a series of bevacizumab times three, um, this patient actually achieved closure of the aneurysm and resolution of the subretinal fluid. Of course, unclear if this was due to the treatment or the natural history, but the visual acuity improved from initial presentation of 2400 to 2050 minus two. This is probably due to the fact that that subretinal fluid, which previously involved the fovea, regressed. The patient was stable nine weeks after cessation of injections, and uh, subsequent follow-up was unable to be had because the patient moved out of the country. Well, I'm glad that at least that you know this patient did a lot better after um, after that treatment. So, Nikhil, thank you so much for presenting this interesting case. To summarize the learning points, these are required. They are usually in one eye. The classic demographic is women in their 60s or 70s with hypertension. They can be associated with vascular occlusion, with basically an arterial occlusion that can you know knock out a big portion of someone's vision. A lot of them will have hemorrhage. It can that can be in any layer, including subretinal, which is the most problematic layer that it could be in. Consider ICG angiography if you see a patient with this problem. Usually, these do quite well. They spontaneously resolve, but they can cause severe vision loss due primarily through the mechanisms of a lot of leakage or through that hemorrhage that we were talking about. The reasonable things to consider are either just observing these, giving anti-VEGF or considering laser photocoagulation if the uh, location is right. And if there's subretinal hemorrhage, then there's other considerations, including uh, surgical management to help with these patients. I guess one more note with natural history is it's it's interesting that, you know, Nikhil mentioned that the involutin can go away in the end. So 
If you have someone who there is a question about whether they had a retinal macroaneurysm and you see them later, you're not usually not going to see like a big bulging aneurysm that you might expect after the, the, the treatment is done. Usually the thing collapses and there may be scant evidence that it was ever there to begin with, uh, which I think is rather interesting. Great. I hope everyone appreciates Nikhil's time coming in on a lovely Sunday to talk to us about this great case he presented. If you like this episode, a rating review on iTunes where we found us is really helpful. And we hope to see you guys next week. Hey, Ben, it was great to be here. Thanks for having me here.